The patient is a conceptual disturbance in the history of medicine, and this disturbance is a product of seemingly irreconcilable oppositions as to its ontological status. These oppositions tend to define the patient either as an autonomous, embodied, knowing subject with a specific perspective and narrative of self and whose existence is prior to the medical encounter, or as a passive, cadaverous, known object without voice or view and the mere product of the medical gaze. From one perspective, the recuperation of the historical patient forms part of an ethical project to give voice to the voiceless and thus enunciate a counter-hegemonic social discourse. In turn, this is criticised as betraying a conceptualization of reality born of a hopelessly naive positivism, which, in the process of appropriating the voice of the subaltern, reproduces the very discourses of power which it seeks to subvert. A further point of dissonance and complication is introduced with the psychiatric patient. In the history of medicine, they've probably received more scholarly attention than any other patient category. Yet they've also served to divide the field historically on the question of the reality of man itself. And cutting through this division is a contention of some psychiatric discourses that madness is marked by incoherence and incomprehensibility. Silence, or more accurately, a constant insistence on silence, surrounds asylum patients. Roy Porter's A Social History of Madness was one of the earliest attempts to provide a place for the perspective of the mad within the field, its stated intention being to present the world through the eyes of the insane. He focused on the memoirs of the mad as an expression of their consciousness and sought to treat the words as coherent communications in their own right. This positioned his text against certain disciplinary discourses that normally regarded the mad as radically incoherent, unintelligible and meaningless, and a Foucauldian discourse that also worked to render the patient invisible by relegating them to the status of factitious medical marionettes given merely the semblance of autonomous life under the power of the clinical gaze. That both of these discourses in the repeated declarations of either the silence of the patient or the irrelevance of his or her utterances work to establish this same silence as fact indicates a point of convergence and mutual support. In response to the Foucauldian position, Porter, while conceding its validity in the present, had invoked Norman Jewson's thesis of the historical loss of patient power relative to medical personnel to argue that, for the medical marketplace of the 18th century at least, patients had held the dominant position over doctors and thus exercised a greater degree of agency. Florin Condreau, however, argues that Porter's stance was intellectually untenable, in at once accepting that the medical gaze constituted the patient, rejecting its retrospective application to the 18th century, and also insisting that the medical encounter is constituted by both doctor and patient. Rather, for Condreau, the question is whether or not the patient exists outside of medical categories, and its resolution necessitates an engagement between historians of medicine who have sought to reconstitute the patient empirically from below and the Foucauldian theoretical model. While one can recognize that patients are constructed in medical encounters and practices and through medical perspectives, it is argued here that they also constitute an emergent element within these discourses and practices, and one, one which participates, consciously or not, in this structuring and self-structuring according to local conditions. Nor does this observation of the conditions of their possibility, of their construction, and of their artificiality make them any less real. Conversely, to imagine that outside of the space and network of the clinic that there could exist a unitary patient-subject 
with an authentic voice and perspective, perhaps as some figment of the subaltern and repressed, is to partake of a philosophical dream. In an exploration of these issues, this paper will examine two patient records drawn from the Grange Gorman archive. The approach adopted is the ethnographic method of thick description and detailed treatments of individual patient case notes. The first mode of doctor-patient engagement I'd like to explore is that where patients adopt a strategy of silence, or rather, near silence. The use of the term strategy here and the connotation that it is deliberately chosen is problematic and potentially provocative, as it appears to endow patients with a degree of agency and autonomy that in the context of mental illness may be difficult to support. However, as volitional action is interpreted not simply as a quality inherent in the individual, but as a highly contingent phenomenon that is socially mediated, attributed, and emergent, it is assumed to potentially operate even under the veil of madness and possible biopathological processes or states. It does not presume the purposeful action of a disembodied calculating reason of a grand campaign. Rather, it suggests a logic of networked interaction born out of presence and immediate relationships that is directed by an implicit and relational sense of what is at stake in the game. Silence and silencing, omissions and withdrawal, are pervasive features of asylum case notes. Silence follows the end of each case record, whether punctuated by death, discharge, or simply an unexplained cessation. Silence can be the companion of many ineffable conditions of human suffering, misery, and isolation. Silence may entail incapacity, it may be truly dumb, or it can be eloquence. Silence presents problems of representation no less for medical ethnographers of madness and the mad than for the historian. Silence is here considered a legitimate means of communication, as a counterpoint to speech and pointing beyond itself. But its use in the example which follows is marked by excess. In the absence of words, other forms of communication, of telling and narrativizing through bodily comportment and inscription, were entered in the strange dialogue of the psychiatric interview. A near exemplary reticence in verbal engagement was evident in the record of William D., a 22-year-old unmarried plasterer who was admitted to Grange Gorman as a dangerous lunatic on the 2nd of August 1900 from the North Dublin Union. He would remain a resident at Grange Gorman for a period of 56 years, dying at approximately 78 years of age. The justification for his admission was that he had attempted suicide by refusing his food. The medical officers exerted a considerable amount of energy attempting to extract a satisfactory explanation for this behaviour. They recorded he refused his food because he did not care to eat it there in the Union. He would have eaten it if he was allowed home. Despite this rare answer, they pursued the notion that this refusal was inspired by delusional thinking and appeared to become frustrated by the fact that he will not say if he thought that anything was wrong with the food. On the night of his admission, he refused supper and hot milk and was force-fed twice daily with a nasal tube. He resumed eating again shortly thereafter. His physical appearance, posture and stance were an object of remark for the medical staff perhaps particularly as he was so reserved in speech. His body was also constructed as a biomedical object through the inscribed practices of medical examination of his heart and lung functions, his reflexes, his tongue, and his penis and testicles. With age, he developed a cataract, first in his left and then in his right eye, and he became feeble. From his first case-taking and throughout his period of incarceration, he was most frequently described as depressed. 
Once, early on in his institutional life, it was noted that he appears to be in great fear. The very limited emotional lightness infrequently observed on his features and in his behavior evince but rare or rarely observed solitary pleasures, as only he is sometimes seen to smile to himself, or that he takes occasional fits of laughing without any apparent reason. Increasingly, with the passage of time, even negative emotions were stripped from his demeanor, as he was characterized as either apathetic or listless. After 10 months in the asylum and continuing for more than 20 years thereafter, the case notes record the medical officer's observations of his apparently declining memory as defective or confused and that he remembers nothing. Congruent with this apparent loss of contact with the past was that of his seeming inability to locate the present in calendrical time or to indicate the length of time since his committal with any degree of precision. And we are frequently told that he doesn't know the year, month or day. Similarly, he evinces no knowledge of his location. While early on in his tenure as an asylum patient, it was adjudged that he understands everything said to him, within three years it was noted that his present mental state is one of dementia. Thereafter, and for the remainder of his life there, his cognitive state was regularly typified as demented. However, the defining feature of William Dee's life in the asylum was his relative silence broken only by what were generally one-word replies, a shake or nod of the head, or a shrug of the shoulders. From his earliest contact with the asylum doctors, they observed that it was almost impossible to get him to speak, and it was recorded repeatedly that he refuses to speak, that he will not speak, or some similar observation. The volitional aspects of many of these statements indicate an assumption of the interviewing doctor that his near speechlessness was willful rather than being the product of incapacity. They thus attribute, at least initially, the trace of autonomy and capacity to this engagement of silence. Occasionally, the persistence, determination, and aggression of a medical officer could force some response, and an indication of the techniques that were applied in these instances is provided in entries that read, refuse to answer a question until hard-pressed, answers only when cross-examined, and when I shout at him, he answers yes, but nothing further. Nonetheless, William D. was more frequently reported to take no notice of questions. This attitude extended to all his potential social relationships within the institution. Thus, in addition to the numerous entries that described him as silent, speechless, or some equivalent term, we are are informed that he never speaks in the division and that he doesn't join in conversations or games with the other patients. Near the end of his life, the use of the word mute seems to suggest the very impossibility of speech. The rare and limited responses that were apparently unwillingly extracted from William D. generally occupied a very narrow range of verbal possibilities. Frequently, the medical officer recorded an apparent frustration that he answers in monosyllables or with one word, generally yes or no. On two occasions, the first after a lot of persuasion and the second on being questioned several times, he expanded his repertoire of verbal responses and answered well, but nothing further. His mode of speech on the uncommon occasion when any speech modality was used was described as a whisper, an undertone, a monotone, or a hoarse whisper, which it is very difficult to catch. On three occasions during his 56-year residence in the mental hospital, where direct observation of a spoken voice rather than whispered phonation was provided, we are told that he spoke in a feeble, shallow voice, or in a falsetto voice when questioned, or that he answers questions in a rather cringing voice. In the absence of words, William D. was, at times, observed communicating during the first 16 years of his committal, 
period with a limited variety of bodily gestures, indicating possible agreement, dissent, or indifference. Thus, the case notes recorded that he nods his head in the affirmative and shakes it in the negative when questioned. On other occasions, he simply shrugs his shoulders but makes no reply when questioned, or when spoken to, he swings his shoulders and mutters unintelligibly. His mode of attention, or the lack thereof, was inferred by the direction of his gaze. One entry reads that he looks up when questioned, apparently acknowledging his medical interlocutor, but he will not speak. On another occasion, it's recorded that he stares at me in a dazed manner, indicating for the doctor intellectual confusion. Frequently, he seems not to register or acknowledge the presence of the doctor and instead just keeps staring at the four walls of the room. Despite this, William D. was typically presented as quiet and well-conducted, well-behaved and obliging. Throughout his residence in the asylum, he pursued, as a parallel to the life he might have had beyond the institution's walls, a variety of work careers and was continually described as a good worker. He was variously employed on the asylum farm, on the wards, at plastering, in the hospital annex and in the asylum stores from 1900 until 1947 ending his career at a fairly typical retirement age after over 40 years of steady employment. Reflecting on this life, we see that William D. entered the asylum refusing to eat and apparently wanting to die, or at least not caring to live. Yet he persisted and lived on and on for over five decades. His life is represented in the case notes, which this paper has reauthored under a particular thematic order, appears marked by a certain emotional hopelessness defeat and either an almost total rejection of sociality or capacity for sin that was only significantly contradicted in the realm of institutional employment. (coughs) The most difficult aspect to respond to is the meaning of his near silence and its implied lack of agency. If one considers agency as reflective intentionality, it is likely inapplicable to William D. Instead, one could reasonably assert that he was simply mentally ill, implicitly entailing incapacity, as if this of itself was sufficient to end all further inquiry. However, it is argued here that the concept of agency counterpoising reflective intentionality to incapacity is misconceived. Agency is not an inherent essential characteristic of the person. Rather, it is an emergent and variable property defined in relation to other people and objects, or rather, that it is an effect of such relations. Under this conception, the clearest demonstration of agency for William D. is that for many decades he is treated as if his silence is volitional, and that in principle it is possible for him to talk. Thus, in the dialogue between doctor and patient, his silence, which assumes the quality of the communicative act, gains a character of intentionality through through attribution. In this sense, a degree of agency emerges in the context of the psychiatric interview, precisely at the point where his refusal of speech is a disruption of the network in which he is embedded and demands a response from the medical staff which results in either the ascription of meaning to his action or the production of a verbal response through psychological force. For William D. the patient, however, this is a quality that materially decays in tandem with his body, his senses, his orientation in time and space, and his descent into senile dementia and total mutism. Thus, the fitful quest of the asylum doctors to get William D. to reveal his subjective experience dissipates over time as it is seemingly assumed that there is no interior life left within him to translate into speech. Despite his verbal reticence, William D. necessarily remains as an embodied social presence in dialogue with the doctors. 
his bodily condition and gestures, his posture, the direction of his gaze, the timbre of his voice, and indeed his silence, are all facets of the self that are used in the case record to communicate an identity and social orientation, if highly compromised, and form part of the currency of exchange between asylum staff and patient. <coughs> silence was a common mode of engagement, but of course many patients did enter into verbal dialogue with the medical staff and attempted to fulfil the mandate of providing a usable account of their condition. However, of those prepared to talk, a considerable variety of engagement styles is evident. In a small but significant number of instances, patients, with conscious intent or otherwise, disrupted to some extent the distribution of power within the asylum setting by problematizing the roles of doctor and patient. The mode of disruption considered here is that induced by forms of parodic play within and about these roles and involves behaviours of mimicry and exaggeration. The case of a 30-year-old male, unmarried labourer named Thomas M, admitted to Grange Gorman on the 16th of July 1900 as a dangerous lunatic, exemplifies these issues. He had been committed for relatively short periods on three previous occasions. Following his last discharge, he had served a six-month prison sentence for assaulting a woman, a charge he denied. According to his own account, on the day following his release from prison, his sister had had him committed to the lunatic ward of the North Dublin Union. His committal to Grange Gorman from the Union had arisen, according to his medical warrant, from an assault on a fellow inmate at the workhouse. Thomas M. did not deny this assault. He remained an inmate in Grange Gorman until the 18th of May 1908, when he was transferred to the Portran branch asylum. Other than to record his discharge recovered on the 22nd of February 1911, from the time of this transfer, there were no further case takings. Thomas M's attitude toward the psychiatric interview displayed an apparent awareness, which is not untypical of those previously committed, of the possible medical and diagnostic, diagnostic significance that might be attributed to his statements. When asked by the interviewing doctor why he had assaulted an, in, an inmate in the union, he replied, Oh, if I say anything, I have delusions. Here, he subverts something of the foundational basis of the psychiatric interview as he implies that, rather than any object, objective metric being applied, anything he says, whether true or not, is liable to be taken as evidence of a delusional state of mind. Later, in expressing his dislike of the institution, he homologizes the psychiatrist's attitude with his own, stating that he does not care to be here and believes that I myself, the doctor, don't care much for it either. This rhetoric serves to destabilize the assumed direction of the exchange between doctor and patient, where the doctor's subjectivity becomes an object of knowledge and is brought into alignment with Thomas M's own position. A little later, he reveals that people were never satisfied until they got him here and now it is not such a big laugh for them after all. This led the doctor to conclude that he thought people were conspiring against him. However, he ruefully noted that if he has asked many questions, he grows suspicious and says, you know the rest yourself, there is no use in talking. This statement by Thomas M, or variations of it, was quite typical of patients in this situation, and it functions, regardless of intent, as a strategy of evasion and non-revelation, where the patient can exercise a degree of control over the medical interview. It also forestalls the potential consequences of revealing a putatively delusional state. 
However, the following month, Thomas M. changed his mode of engagement and willingly offered evidence of mental aberrancy. But he did so only in regard to his retrospective self, stating, I was a bad case when I came in here four weeks ago. I thought you and everyone else knew my mind. This statement had the effect of distancing his present self from a past delusional state and could have potentially formed the beginning of a medical narrative of recovery. It also indicates that his earlier statement that the doctor knew his mental condition was possibly meant in a literal sense. His case taking in November 1900 largely consisted of three seemingly unconnected statements. The first reads, I was never anything but the way I am now, always the one way. It seemingly confirms Thomas M's self of self as continuous and stable. Unlike his previous statement, there's no suggestion here of there being a former self, mentally healthy or otherwise, to which the medical staff could seek to restore him. The next statement reads, I went through a bit of ill humor when I came here, first to see if it would change me. This retrospective rationalization attempts to explain his former resistive behavior as a type of unsuccessful therapeutic intervention. It implies that while he was apparently resisting the imposition of asylum discipline and engagement, he was in fact attempting to meet the ostensible goals of the institution through self-reformation. The last statement reads, Dr. Rambo is quieting down a bit. He is not so ferocious as he was. This refers to a Dr. Daniel F. Rambo, then an assistant medical officer at Grange Gorman, who would later become a significant figure in British psychiatry. His characterization of Rambo reads very much like the descriptions which doctors provided of patients in the case books. Rambo's behavior was evaluated by him in terms of his diminishing aggressiveness and ferocity. The doctor, perhaps having been somewhat overexcited initially from Thomas M's point of view, is at last quieting down a bit. Rambo, rather than the patient, it would appear, became easier to manage and less of an impediment to the orderly running of Thomas M's asylum career. In September 1901, because he threatened to escape and became abusive and generally threatening, Thomas M was transferred to Division 6, the refractory ward. In keeping with his general attitude of perversity, we learn that he likes the division very well and says he would prefer it to anyone in the house if it wouldn't delay his discharge. Once there, he was prepared to expand on his psychiatric symptomatology and elaborate on his delusions, stating that he thinks everyone is talking about him and says he has about 3,000 men to fight here and half the world outside. While in such an expansive mood, he did not, however, decline the opportunity of degrading the institution of Grange Gorman or its inhabitants and stated that this place is a home for pickpockets and prostitutes when they have no place to go. By January 1902, having been moved out of Division 6, his mood worsened. He was disinclined to converse at any length with the interviewing alienist and offered instead a rather bleak prognosis and radical form of therapeutic intervention for the asylum's medical officers. It's recorded then. He's very sulky, and when asked any question, he curtly answers, that is my business. He states that any medical officer in an asylum is not an honest man and that the only hope for them is to shoot them. At the next case taking in July 1902, it emerged that Thomas M. had negotiated a path back to his beloved Division 6 through the mobilization of his body and the tactic of food refusal. Once transferred, although he was still reported as quarrelsome, he was quite happy to eat and, most importantly, elaborate on a psychiatric symptomatology for the benefit of the interviewing psychiatrist. He complains that the meat at dinner is the flesh of a man who has been hanged, 
according to the case notes, and that about 3,000 of the inmates, both men and women, prevent him from sleeping. In comparison to many of his previous statements, this one that he's being served human flesh taken from a condemned man seems much more extreme and bizarre. Moreover, despite the apparent belief that he's being fed human flesh, there's no record of his refusing to eat it. It could be argued here that Thomas M., delusional or not, was playing with the medical expectations um, in making this revelation. His condition is reported as improved at the next case report, but six months later we learn that he is now very weak-minded, says he's the only man in the world, and that he's the best man alive. For very little, I would destroy the world. He has a very poor opinion of the world in general, says nobody is any good but the women. He continually hears voices talking to him, says he's able to talk to anyone he wishes. In the ward, he delights in showing off his imaginary pugilistic powers. Thomas Ham's mode of engagement, as evinced in this and previous entries, is marked by distinct ambiguity in his self-presentation as a patient. He constantly oscillated between meeting and frustrating the expectations of the medical staff as to the behavior and symptoms appropriate to the mad. Moreover, when he does enter the role of the mad person, it appears that he does so to a point of extremity that suggests the possibility, at least, of a satirization of his anticipated behavior. Suggestion of this possibility does not have as, have as its corollary that Thomas M. was not mad or delusional, howsoever defined. In January 1906, a statement by Thomas M. introduced a new metaphor of his condition. <coughs> Still hears voices, nothing annoys me except the prostitution of my body, they are making their living by it. Six months later, this statement was expanded. He complains that he hears voices, but he says he does not mind them if they would only let my body alone. As for an explanation, he says, they prostituted. I cannot get any more from him on the subject. He says that he has given human flesh to eat and that altogether the treatment he receives is abominable. The metaphor of prostitution could be interpreted as referring to the conditions in which he was detained as an asylum inmate and the loss of autonomy that this implies. This is tenable, I think, given the fact that he had earlier equated patients and medical staff to both pickpockets and prostitutes, the exploiters and the exploited. In this sense, perhaps, to be a prostitute or a patient in an asylum was to surrender a degree of ownership over one's body, to be necessarily open to certain forms of invasion and loss of bodily autonomy. <coughs> Moreover, in a structuralist sense, as patients are for the medical staff, and indeed the historian researching the hospital archive, a resource to be used in the furtherance of their own careers. They are a means by which they garner a living. Hmm. Additionally, whilst he admits here to a classic symptom of mental pathology in the form of voice hearing, he asserts his indifference to them, to it, and thus degrades his quality as a true marker of mental distress. Similarly, in July 1907, he's recorded as stating, I hear voices still. They say all sorts of things, sometimes most edifying. The medical officer inserted a question mark in parenthesis after this statement. It is obviously indicative of the doctor's puzzlement that a symptom of psychiatric morbidity could, from the patient's perspective, provide either intellectual or moral instruction to the recipient. Here in Persis is an exemplification of how the position of doctor and patient in dialogue could still mark out incommensurate and differential subjective and objective territories. In his penultimate case-taking in 1908, he once more adopted the position of an observer in reference to seeing the young ladies at the lower house doing things with the young men. 
This obviously provoked the attention of the doctor, who insisted on knowing what the young men and ladies were actually doing. The answer turns out to be quite innocent. The young men are showing them photos and writing for the young ladies. His last entry reads that he hears the voices of young ladies and men, that the men are dressed as ladies and the ladies as men, and that they do be breaking the obstacles. These last two case takings function as an appropriate summation of Thomas M's ambiguous and liminal role within the asylum. Here can be seen his dual stance of mimicry and parody. The mimetic function emerges in this episode in his role as an observer of either staff or patients or both. The parodic emerges in the poetic vision of sexual congress and masquerade. The form of the dialogical transactions between Thomas M and his doctors are represented here as he engaged them by arousing their curiosity and concern before leading them, af- leading them after an evanescent object. Kind of quick. So to conclude, the tendency to interpret both the practice of the medical interview and its inscribed structuring product, the medical record, as solely constituted by the medical gaze and practices of medical power, aligns the degree to which this inquisitorial technology of revelation and realization could be realized through practices of an even exchange and the degree to which medical records themselves could be heteroglossic texts. Perspective is not a preformed property that belongs to patients in the absence of a medical context, but neither is it equivalent to the overpopulated domain of medical perspectives. Both patients and doctors constitute each other in coordinated, if not necessarily freely freely collaborative, processes of enactment. Yet, this is not to argue that patients and doctors were participants of equal standing in the context of the psychiatric interview, nor that, to use Michael Bakken's terms, there was not a variant tendency towards monologism, central petalism, singularity, and authoritative discourse in the doctor's voice, or indeed voices, and hence the medical record as written by doctors. That is, the uneven attempt by physicians in the act of transcription to restrain the dispersal of signification and reduce all utterances in the psychiatric interview to a single meaning relating to medical, mental, moral, and behavioral pathology. This impetus towards monologism, however, was constantly met by centrifugal forces, even from within medical practices and discourses themselves, which produced multiple articulations and fragile instantations of the patient. This is reflected in the case record to the, to the degree that it collated and inscribed a multiplicity of practices and patient articulations, including, for instance, physical examination, urine tests, blood tests, IQ tests, EEG reports, x-rays, medical certificates, correspondence with other doctors, patient accounts, family interviews and reports, information from the police or the workhouse, and so on and so on in a chain of references. An individual case-taking was necessarily in dialogue with this network of associations, as it was also in dialogue with all the future and past case-takings. Gail Davis, referring to the multi-authored nature of the case records, has conceptualized them as performing an act of information linkage. And in this sense, they can be understood as a technology designed to relate and coordinate the variety of practices producing patients. Yet both it and the medical interview serve as a point in clinical space and time where centrifugal as well as, well as centripetal forces are brought to bear. Thank you.